1: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz.
0: Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and
0: Bloomberg.com. Since the beginning of this year, when President Donald Trump took Office arrests of suspected undocumented workers have jumped 38 percent, and this is causing some alarm in some unlikely corners, including Haskell County where 77 percent of the voters cast ballots for President Trump. Michelle Marisco, who highlighted uh, this issue, is is joining us now. She is an economics reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, And you took a look at how certain residents and uh, company owners are getting increasingly concerned about the crackdown on Mexican immigrants. Can you can you explain
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean, especially in the agriculture industry, that's kind of where we focused our our efforts and trying to understand this. Uh, You know, employers are just worried because they have so many foreign-born workers, and they want to protect these workers, not just for humanitarian reasons, but also economic reasons. So, uh, this is a part of the country and a part of Kansas. We went to southwest Kansas, where uh, it's incredibly tight labor market. Uh, You know, unemployment is, in in some cases, almost half the national rate of 4.3%, so they're seeing 2, 5, 2, 3 even uh, percent unemployment. And that just it just means there's a scarcity of workers and they they need to hold on to what they have in order to keep business going.
1: Michelle, maybe you could tell us a little bit of the detail of Congressman uh, Roger Marshall and Mm -hmm. uh, how he has become at least a public face for this debate because he's the congressman from the first district.
2: Sure. Congressman Marshall was uh, very interesting to speak with. Um, so he's a freshman Republican for the first district in Kansas, which covers uh, much of southwest Kansas, but also some northwest Kansas and a little bit of northeast Kansas. It's a large district. Um, and and he, it got larger,
1: right, because it moved a little bit east in the right. redistricting.
2: Well, Sure, and 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 just because you know the, the population is a little bit more sparse than it would be in other states, but but it still is a, a significant uh, you know significant amount of land, a significant amount of employees and employers. Um, but the way he sees it, I mean, he, he talked about how a year ago, um, you know, immigration was maybe the three or number three or number four issue for him uh, with his constituents, and just over the course of uh, you know the, the later part of the campaign, and then of course when uh, President Trump took office, it's become definitely the number one issue and one that he. continues to hear about when he goes home. Um, So he's hearing it not just from a security standpoint, um, but definitely from an economic standpoint. He talks about, you know, the folks, the businesses that are are worried, but also the the folks on the ground, you know, families of uh, immigrants who may be documented or undocumented, but both being so worried uh, about the uncertainty right now around policy.
0: You know, Michelle, one of the big arguments that President Trump made when he was signing uh, rules to crack down on immigration. And illegal immigration was uh, it was important to have uh, people employed in the U.S., from the U.S., people mm-hmm. who would get wages that would be appropriate. Why aren't these companies just raising wages in order to attract more people from uh, the U.S. to work for them?
2: Well, I think that's a great question in general, and that's, of course, one that we asked uh, of these farmers. I mean, I think in their case, especially where we were in southwest Kansas, they, they said, you know, look, this isn't about cheap labor. We've tried to hire people through higher wages. There's just not people that are willing to do it outside of the foreign-born labor. Um, so, you know, you take the case of someone like Kyle Aberhoff, who's general manager of a, a dairy farm, and he said, look, we went to high unemployment counties in Kansas. We said, here's our pitch. We're giving, you know, some of these jobs are no skills required, and they and level $40,000, which means a lot in an area where the cost of living isn't high. And even then, he said it's hard to get people, if you talk about native-born versus foreign-born, it's hard to get the native-born unemployed to come to that area of Kansas. He just, he said, we tried and, and, you know, we're willing to pay big bucks. And, you know, the only people that have taken these are foreign-born workers coming in. So that's, that's what they want to protect is those, those workers that they can get. So, Michelle,
0: given this economic concern for uh, these producers, is there any talk about them going to Washington and trying to change the policies in order to get labor? I mean, even if they're willing to, I mean, can they show that they've been willing to pay more uh, to people who are you know, native residents and right. that they just don't have enough staff?
2: Well, I think they're trying to make their voices heard both on the state and the national level through different organizations. Um, of course, there's a pretty powerful lobby, you know, the American Farm Bureau and, and others in the dairy industry and, um, and and some smaller ones in the farm industry that are, certainly making their case for this and have for a while. I, I you know I think the, the onus is on Washington now to kind of get something going, but of course with with all the other things going on, it's it's hard to say where immigration will fall in and, and, and terms of priorities. But but yeah, they're still pushing. I mean, they're, they're trying to be practical about this and ask for very specific things um, in terms of kind of getting year-round visas instead of just the seasonal workers that the Trump administration has highlighted and, and really try to put this before people. I mean, they've, they've credited Agriculture Secretary uh, Sonny Perdue with really being familiar with uh, the problem and, and proposed solutions, but we'll see how far he can get with Congress and with the rest of the administration.
1: Michelle, uh, are they going to get practical before milk goes to $6.40 a gallon?
2: <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, I know you've seen what the dairy lobby has said could happen. Um, and, you know, that's just one figure. I mean, they're they're talking about, uh, you know, some nightmare scenarios if we lose those workers. And, of course, it's anyone's guess what would happen. But So it's all about the deal. money. Well, it could be, yeah. I mean, I mean for the it companies,
1: it's all about <laughs> the money. They want to stay in business and they want to make more money.
2: I think, that, yeah, on a, on a massive scale, yes, but I think when you talk to people who are, especially in these small towns, who, who know their workers, who whose kids play with each other, they, you know, they go out to the baseball games together and they see these people, they, they definitely have a humanitarian concern. And that, that was one thing that, you know, rang true for a lot of the farmers I spoke with. They said, look, this, this is about economics, this is about business, but, you know, we need to protect our workers and we care about these people. These are our friends. Um, not just our employees. So, I, you know, you do you do see that hit home, especially in the small town areas uh, of the country that are dealing with this. And
0: yet you point to one Haskell County, uh, where Cattle Empire is the biggest employer. Cattle Empire uh, mm-hmm. relies in, in big part on uh, immigrants for their labor. Seventy seven percent of voters cast ballots for President Trump. Did they talk mm-hmm. at all about uh, changing their views at all on his policies and their opinion of his tenure?
2: I think they were they were frustrated. Um, some of them, you know, we didn't talk so much about who they voted for uh, specifically one on one. But you know, some of them would say things like, you know, I think the rhetoric needs to kind of get toned down. I think, you know, he's proposed some some good things in terms of uh, you know being focused more on, on the criminal deportations than uh, than anything else. But I think there's they all kind of recognize this broken channel of communications where there's certain things being said out of Washington that are not helpful on the ground, and even if it doesn't match with what's going to happen. With policy, it's it's already generating some fear and uncertainty. So they're they're hopeful that you know this kind of gets worked out uh, communications-wise, and then that that pays the way for some policy changes that will be practically helpful down the road.
1: Well, Michelle, it certainly sounds like there's going to be a topic that keeps on uh, being of, of vital interest to the. Certainly. But uh, just quickly, the member of the House, right, Roger Marshall, again, it, it, give you 20 seconds. What's his position? What's he doing? <laughs>
2: Well, he's, he's trying to make it clear, um, you know, that, yes, we should be focused on security and on a national level, he says, you know, as a congressman, I still think security is the number one uh, concern around immigration. But he said, look, I think the president will come around to the economic practicalities of this, and this is certainly uh, a huge concern of my constituents. But one quote that I, I really really stuck with me um, when we were talking about this, he said, I wish the Republicans could translate the sincerity of their hearts. He thinks that a lot of his Republican colleagues really do care about these immigrants as, as work and as people, and he he doesn't, you know, he thinks lost in this debate is uh, is sort of a um, politically charged uh, debate, but he thinks it's more about the economics and the humanitarian concerns.
1: Thanks very much. Michelle Jamrisco, economics reporter for Bloomberg News, reporting from Washington. Great story. Much appreciated.
0: prices, crude, is down to the lowest level since August of last year with current price of less than $43 a barrel. Vincent Piazza has been watching this, shaking his head, saying, hmm, can it go lower? He is senior equity energy analyst and global sector leader for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. So Vince, do you see that this could go lower? Uh, and what exactly prompted this latest leg lower that broke through uh, certain technical thresholds that people had? Sentiment is obviously poor.
3: Um, (laughs) All right, then. (laughs) OPEC, uh, we were looking for OPEC to do more than just reaffirm or extend those cuts. We were looking for deeper cuts, just given the fact that we did not see any, any, any of that storage dilute over the course of the past year or so. Um, And so these cuts, extending these cuts really doesn't do much because you have an enormous amount of capacity coming out of the U.S. that has been underestimated. Uh, We have drilled uncompleted wells that present this just-in-time inventory of capacity that can really fill that void. Uh, And therefore, you have imbalances that will last for longer. You do not have a clear view on the sustainability of demand growth. But we do have a clear view on the output coming out of the, U- out of the U.S., which is pushing past 9.2, 9.3 million barrels a day. It'll likely reach, at this level, uh, 10 million barrels in the not that, distant future. Put
0: that into perspective. I mean, what was it, say, five years ago?
3: Well, so in 2007, 2008, we bow- we. Bow- we We bottomed at around five million barrels. We peaked just before uh, the announcement by OPEC at nine point six million barrels. We dropped to around eight point six. We have recovered very sharply off that low again. And that's because of this just in time inventory that can react more quickly to any kind of price signal, any kind of price response. That, that's, a,
1: that's a point you got. Every, you should underscore, right? Because this just-in-time ability to turn on and turn off, the ability to get hydrocarbons out of the ground is something that is particular to the technology and the advances that have been made in, in the United States.
3: Yeah. Um- Horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, the the advantage is really been, has really been underestimated by those outside the U.S. and, and, and probably or outside, outside the, the industry, U- right? Yeah. They don't under,
1: they. It's this is a turn on turn off thing, unlike many other kinds of uh, drilling techniques. Longer
3: dated projects take longer to bring these hydrocarbons up, but exploitation of on land U.S. oil and gas tight. Tight oil and gas allows for uh, a very quick response, quicker response than
1: expected. So, okay. So then let's use that as maybe as a jumping off point for this EQT rice energy deal that was announced, I guess it was yesterday. Uh, tell us about this, why this, this is the Marcellus Shale. So it's a western Pennsylvania uh,
3: area. So it's the broader Appalachian Basin. Um, it includes Pennsylvania. Uh, West Virginia and also parts of Ohio. It touches the Marcellus Shale, but also uh, a, a newer shale, uh, the Utica as well. Uh, what you have here is a lower cost, more economic uh, basin, and you have a consolidator who now becomes the largest natural gas producer in the US EQT. EQT EQT they paid
1: 6.7 billion is the price
3: yeah and when, when, once you assume the debt you're north of eight but the general theme here is that I now have capacity that's lower cost coming out of the Appalachian Basin that can push out into the Midwest and also the Gulf Coast and depress natural gas benchmark prices in other hubs and therefore you have as Bi has mentioned in the past, a lower for longer output, uh, a lower for longer price of nat gas, given the higher output coming from a lower cost basin.
0: Given the outlook for lower prices for longer, how does that affect mergers and acquisitions that are in the pipeline? That you know, they've uh, dropped just because it's getting harder to evaluate right. what the worth is.
3: Yeah. So so Q one uh, EMP. North, uh, U.S. deals numbered somewhere around $23 billion. Uh, in 2Q, as of last week, roughly about $8 billion were announced. Now, if you add in EQT and and Rice, uh, that brings it up a little bit. But you have this period of of, of uncertainty, of a clouded backdrop, uh, uncertain fundamentals, and that's sort of uh, pushing the Pushing the prospects of of deal-making out some. Uh, you have crude oil, which is down roughly 20%. Natty is down 22% year-to-date. You still have imbalances across the petroleum value chain, and that is causing pause for a lot of these EMP management teams.
0: Natty, that's natural gas. I'm yes, saying. it is. Yes, okay, it is. just making sure.
1: Natty. All right, I'm going to tell you, Natty. Uh, it's actually up a tenth of a percent right now. $2.89 for... Uh, Well, British Thermal Unit, right? That's what we're doing at 10,000 BTU. Thanks very much uh, for joining us, Vincent Piazza. He's always expert when it comes to uh, energy analysis for Bloomberg Intelligence. Let's uh, stay international a little bit and go to Simon Ballard. He is our global credit strategist for Bloomberg News based in London. Simon, always a pleasure to get your thoughts on what's going on. I just want to set the context, if you can, which is we got a rally in U.S. Treasuries. Taking a look at the long end of the curve specifically, uh, the 10-year is up 730 seconds. We're at 216, and for the 30-year, we're at under two. 75. We're just at 274 right now, up more than 24 basis points. Uh, uh, 24, 30 seconds. I beg your pardon. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. We've got to rally across here in Europe as well. And I think there's that that underlying, that underlying sort of uncertainty, if you wish, to, to, to global macro, to politics. Um, and while you've got, you know, we could, we're looking at 216 on the 10-year Treasury, as you say, we're, uh, we're down to sort of 27 basis points on the 10-year Bund. And the front end of the German curve is negative uh, to the extent of sort of 64 basis points on the two-year, which uh, exacerbates the lack of yield for investors over here in Europe, even more than in Euro- in, in the U.S.
0: Yeah, Simon, you know, you wrote about this paradox, and I thought that it was really compelling Basically, you've got issuers, companies that are selling debt uh, at an accelerating pace. Right now, I'm looking at the uh, European Corporate Bond Index. uh, Almost $2 trillion, or 2 trillion euros, I should say, uh, worth of debt in that index, up from less than 1.4 trillion euros back in 2009, a dramatic increase. And basically, you've got companies that are betting that yields will eventually rise, and they want to lock in borrowing costs at these low rates now. And then you have investors who are betting that, interest rates are going to stay low and that it's worthwhile buying this. <laughs> I, I mean, it, somebody has to be wrong.
4: Well, somebody has to be wrong in the long term, but in the short term, they probably live alongside each other quite happily. Um, and you've seen a compression in yield spreads um, here in Europe, as well as in the US over the course of the last year. And if we take the European High Yield Index on Bloomberg, for example, uh, that's that's uh, you know tightened about 100 basis points during the course of this year. Those sub-investment grade rated corporates that investors have been chasing and looking to invest in to try and get the incremental yield against that backdrop of, you know, 216 and 20, 27 basis points on 10-year bund here in Europe that, you know, people have been looking to, to, um, to, to try and maximise the yields in their portfolio. So from an issuer's perspective, why wouldn't you want to raise funds in this sort of an environment at these sort of funding levels? And from an issu- from, a, from an investor's perspective, then yes, you want to look down the quality curve in order to try and get as much yield as you can from these corporates into your portfolio. At the end of the day, you know, yields aren't going to continue to compress and to narrow, and there will be a correction. It's a question of these both both sides of this equation looking to make sure they get their timing right.
1: Simon, do the uh, do the buyers ultimately believe that the European Central Bank, as many central banks have done, would come in and bail them out if anything went wrong, particularly if, uh, well, it was a big collapse? <laughs>
4: well, hasn't that be, hasn't that really been the sort of the the uh, the, the belief across you markets? We have two, you have two buyers and?
1: really. You got the buyer behind you who's willing to put up the bid, right? The European Central Absolutely. Bank and then you've got the actual investor.
4: And you've got the actual investor. And that's the problem. The actual investor is being crowded out to a certain extent by the quantitative easing purchases of the of the central banks, which has exacerbated the move tighter and the, the decline in yields, if you wish. So, going forward, you know, there is this assumption that the central banks have always got your back, will always be there. But, you know, as we, we look towards sort of the unwind, the tapering, you know, be that later this year, be it the course of 2018, it's the rhetoric, it's the language that leads us to that position, probably more importantly in the short term, that's going to drive risk asset sentiment and risk appetite, as we start to learn about uh, you know central bank's potential timing for moving towards that taper, even if we're not talking about tapering itself, the language it, will be critical.
0: Simon, there is a cliche in debt markets that Europe is about eighteen months to two years behind the US in terms of credit cycles and we <laughs> are seeing uh, uh, we are seeing in the US companies levering up and you know their credit quality deteriorating. Do yeah. you see a similar trend? And in Europe, how are the issuers that are coming to market And, and can you give us some examples?
4: Yes, no, exactly. I mean, we've, we've, we've you know, got a number of issuers, I guess, during the course of this year, as we've seen this compression in high yield spreads, as we've seen the reach for yield across the, uh, across the investor base, then the market has been opened up increasingly to, to sub-investment grade borrowers um, in order to, you know, to, 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 to get funding on board. When interest rates start to rise, when yields start to increase, then the debt service costs of these weaker rated corporates uh, will become more onerous. And that's when investors have to start looking at the fundamentals. For the for the individual companies that they've been buying into, in 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 terms of their ability to service those debt service sorry their ability to pay those debt service costs um, in a high yield environment. So we've seen everything from you know Cyprus is in the market today sub investment grade on a sovereign level probably has a little bit more credibility in terms of your your underlying fundamental belief than than a, than a high rated corporate. Uh, but then we had the likes of you know the Accardo. Um, uh, retail chain uh, only early on this week, last week, um, coming in sterling and again sort of reflecting the, the ability of, of weaker rated credits to come and with some fanfare as well. Um, but you know, the fanfare is fine while the music's playing, but at some point the music will stop when the, when the central banks suggest that they're going to turn the volume down.
0: And Simon, real quick, what's the over under in the fact that the uh, ECB uh, is unlikely to announce any kind of taper in the near term?
4: Yeah, I mean, no, no, no taper in the near term. I think the, the soonest we could look for any language or, or hint from them that they're looking in that direction uh, would be September. But for the time being, you know, the market remains well supported. We have the latest uh, corporate sector purchase program data that came out yesterday that showed that, OK, a slightly reduced level last week, but they're still buying corporate bonds. They're still supporting uh, fixed income markets very, very significantly. Um, yeah. And in that sort of context, investors want to continue to, to buy what the central banks are buying.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Simon Ballard, global credit strategist, For Bloomberg News joining us from London, where they are awash in liquidity from the central bank without any sense of when it could end fueling uh, this corporate debt boom and everything boom uh, as we are seeing. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis